Hello, and thank you for joining us today. Welcome to this podcast, which forms part of our series flowing from the CMS Oil and Gas Annual Review. If you've listened to other podcasts in the series, then you'll already know that the Annual Review focuses on the latest developments in English oil and gas law and what they mean for the industry. I'm Rob Wilson, a partner and solicitor advocate at CMS where I focus on energy disputes. I'm joined today by Andy Shaw, a transactional partner in our oil and gas team in London, and Jeremy Witt, another disputes partner uh, in our construction and energy team, who is in fact based in Australia. In this episode, we'll be focusing on issues arising under engineering, procurement, and construction contracts, known to many of us as simply EPC contracts. In particular, we will be discussing today two recent cases covered in our 2020 edition of the CMS Oil and Gas Annual Review. And the first case that we'll be considering is a decision of the Australian High Court in 2019 and relates to the issue of quantum merit and whether it can be used as the basis for quantifying a claim post-termination. The second case is a decision of the Technology and Construction Court in England from 2020 and relates to how a clause that sought to exclude indirect and consequential loss or damage should be interpreted and construed. So I'm going to hand over to Jeremy to take us through the first case. Jeremy, over to you. Thanks, Rob. The, the first case that we're looking at today is Mann and Patterson Constructions Proprietary Limited. Um, the citation of that is 2019 High Court of Australia 32. Um, as Rob mentioned, this is a decision by the High Court of Australia. And for those who aren't familiar with the Australian uh, judicial um, system, the High Court here sits on the top of the pyramid of the courts um, above our federal and state Supreme Courts. So in the inverse position to the High Courts and Supreme Court in the UK. Um, this case arose out of a dispute between the Manns, who were the owners and employers under a domestic building contract, and Patterson Constructions for the construction of two townhouses. The parties ended up in a dispute over delays to the construction and over the value of some of the work that had been completed. The Manns formed the view that Patterson Constructions had repudiated the contract. Uh, they purported to accept that repudiation and then terminated the contract. Patterson Constructions took the view that the termination uh, by the man's was unlawful, that it was a repudiatory breach, and it accepted this repudiation. At first instance, the matter was considered by VCAT, which is the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, and it held that Patterson was not responsible for the delays to the completion of the works, and that the man's conduct in alleging repudiation by the contractor and terminating was itself repudiatory. Now, the High Court of Australia wasn't concerned with this background, which gave rise uh, to the determination of which party repudiated the contract. But the key issue before the High Court was how an innocent party's damages are to be calculated where it has accepted uh, a repudiation by the other party. The contractor had claimed on a quantum merit basis, which means it had sought payment of a reasonable amount for the work it had performed. Now, it's long been accepted under Australian law as it still is under the laws of many common law jurisdictions, including England and Wales, 
that where a innocent party had accepted repudiation by the other side and terminated, um, that party can elect to either claim for damages for the breach of the contract or could claim on a quantum merit basis uh, for a reasonable amount for the work it had performed. In this case, the contractor was entitled to recover significantly more um, on a quantum merit basis than it would have been able to recover under the contract. This is not um, an entirely unusual situation on EPC or building infrastructure projects. Um, The margins can often be quite slim and contractors can be caught by unexpected site conditions. So in this case, uh, it was potential windfall for the contractor. The ability of an innocent party to claim in this way is not novel or new. It arises out of a 1904 decision by the Privy Council in Lauder and Slowey, where the Privy Council was hearing a matter referred to it by the New Zealand Court of Appeal. Um, And the basic principle uh, had become well established in Australian law. The Manns appealed VCAT's decision to the Supreme Court of Victoria and the Court of Appeal, which both maintained the status quo and held that the contractor was entitled to recover on a quantum merit basis and upheld VCAT's calculation, except for correcting a minor mathematical error. And the effect of this, as VCAT noted, was that Patterson Constructions would have been titled to significantly more than it could have otherwise recovered under the contract. Now, the decisions made um, by the Australian courts leading up to this and in Mann and Patterson itself were based on what has been described as the rescission fallacy, which means that the courts essentially act as though the terms of a contract that has been repudiated and terminated are entirely irrelevant to what can be recovered on a quantum merit basis. And this arises out of Lauder and Slowery, the the Privy Council matter I referred to before. In its consideration of this matter, the High Court relied upon a number of decisions uh, which have been made by the Australian Court since Lauder and Slowery, as well as a number of English cases. And these showed that the termination of a contract for repudiation or breach does not simply result in the rescission of the contract or it becoming void ab initio. Rather, the parties are discharged from future performance, but any accrued rights they had prior to termination continue to exist. Against that backdrop, the court's reasoning was that the loss the contractor ought to be entitled to recover was a loss of bargain, and the court held that this was no less a creature of the contract than the right to recover sums which were already due and accrued prior to termination. On that basis, the High Court held that the terms of the terminated contract must inform the amount that the innocent party was entitled to recover. So where a contractor had an enforceable right under the terminated contract to a sum as calculated under the contract, there would no longer be an ability to claim on a quantum merit basis an amount unconstrained by the contract. And the reasoning the court had for that is this would subvert the risk allocation which was agreed to by the parties and could result in a windfall for the contractor or alternatively on another view, punishment of the owner and employer which was in any event inconsistent with contractual risk allocation that the parties had agreed to. Now, this, of course, is precisely the reason why um, contractors have historically sought to to use this exception and get around the the breach element of a breach of contract claim and recover a a reasonable amount for work on the basis they can sometimes make significantly more than they would have under the contract. So the effect of this under Australian law is that a contractor can no longer effectively tear up the contract and seek payment on a quantum merit basis where the owner employer repudiates and the contractor has accepted this. Principles which fall from this are where a contractual entitlement to payment had arisen prior to termination, that is the amount the contractor is entitled to and it can no longer elect to pursue a claim on a quantum merit basis. 
but where a contractual entitlement had not yet accrued for works performed prior to termination, then the contractor can elect to recover on a quantum error basis, but the contract price will now operate as a cap on the amount that is recoverable. Now, there's perhaps a small window of opportunity still available uh, for contractors where the contract is entire in nature, such that no remuneration will be payable uh, where the contract was terminated, or alternatively, where the work performed, or at least part of it, was not contemplated by the contract um, and could not be calculated a payment under the contract, which could be the case with some variations, perhaps. Um, but precisely how these situations will be dealt with by the courts in the future is something we're going to have to wait and see, um, and that will depend on the facts of future cases. Great. Thanks so much, Jeremy. That was very useful. Um, just picking up on some of the points you were making there, um, given the line of authorities that you mentioned uh, that uh, post-date the decision in uh, Lodder and Slowey, uh, to what extent uh, do you consider the High Court's comments on the so-called rescission fallacy to be groundbreaking? Or, or have they instead simply clarified um, the position, uh, which, as I understand it, is that termination of a contract for repudiatory breach uh, will not result in the contract being void ab initio. Thanks, Rob. Um, I, I think I don't consider the comments or analysis itself to be groundbreaking. Um, that the rescission fallacy was a fallacy um, has been the subject of academic and judicial consideration previously. And, and as I mentioned, there is a, a line of cases. Um, which started after um, the Lauder and Slavery case, which, which had held that accrued rights would continue to exist. Um, so what was very significant, though, is that by applying the, the principle that termination for repudiatory breach does not result in the contract becoming void of initio, the court in this case overturned a long line of authority, um, which had previously permitted recovery on a quantum arrow basis and held that the contract price was not a cap on the amount that could be recovered um, and has now severely constrained a contractor's ability to recover on a QM basis um, and has effectively held that the contract price will be a cap where, where an entitlement could be uh, calculated in that manner. Great, thank you. Um, just picking up then on the on the um, the other element that I think came out of the decision, uh, which is just, can you just clarify in what circumstances, if any, um, the High Court considered a quantum merit claim uh, would still now be permissible? I think you mentioned um, accrued rights. If you can just expand on that, that'd be helpful. Thank you. Yeah, so where, the, where there is um, no contractual entitlement, um, that has accrued under the contract, um, then you will still have the ability to recover on a quantum merit basis um, in respect of that element of your claim. But with the contract price as it would have been calculated for that element of the works acting as a cap, um, where there's perhaps still some doubt as to how this will be applied, as I mentioned, is where the contract is um, an entire obligation in nature and so the contractor may have been receiving progress payments as they went along, but those were payments only on account and not by reference to an actual entitlement at that point in time. Um, there's potentially um, some doubt there as to how the court will still deal with that. Um, or alternatively, um, where the work which has been done, you cannot properly calculate a value for it under the contract. Um, and I think the, the instance which strikes me as most likely to arise for that is where you have a variation which is not within the nature 
of the type of work which was um, planned or anticipated under the contract. So you may not have applicable schedules of rights, you may not have applicable day rights, um, and it may be that there has to be um, some kind of calculation done of a reasonable amount for that work. Great, thanks so much, Jeremy. Um, Andy, uh, just a, a quick question for you on this case. Uh, in your opinion, uh, do you anticipate this case to will impact the way in which owners or employers perceive the rights associated uh, with uh, pursuing termination of a contract, uh, whether in Australia or elsewhere? Um, Rob, yeah, I think in short, you know, I would agree with that. Um, you know, this decision will most likely give you know, huge comfort to owners or employers, you know, certainly in Australia um, and most likely elsewhere, you know, especially now the court has decided that quantum merit cannot be used as a basis for claims, except in the, you know, the limited circumstances that Jeremy's mentioned. So on balance, yes, absolutely. Great. Okay. Thank you both. So I think let's move on to the second case. Uh, Andy, would you like to take us through the second case, please? Okay. All right. Thank you, Rob. Um, the next case we're going to look at is Two Entertain Video Limited and Ors versus Sony DADC Europe Limited. Um, this is a 2020 technology and construction uh, court decision which considered the traditionally narrow interpretation given by the English courts to indirect and consequential loss exclusion clauses. Um, this case upheld the traditional, uh, the, the traditional approach, but the decision appears to accept the need to give such clauses their natural and ordinary interpretation in the context of the agreement as a whole and any relevant factual matrix. Um, you know, this case follows on from recent judicial commentary criticising the traditional approach, and it might suggest a more case-by-case -case approach to the interpretation of um, exclusion clauses such as these. I think before we go into the case, we probably have to look at what is the traditional approach. Um, several decisions of the English Court of Appeal have established the contractual exclusions for consequential and indirect losses will be those that are with those losses which fall within what is known as the second limb of Hadley v Baxendale. Um, and as I'm sure everybody's aware, Hadley v Baxendale is an old and well-known decision in English law establishing a fundamental division between two types of recoverable losses for breach of contract. The first is um, damages that may fairly and reasonably be considered as arising naturally, um, i.e. according to the usual course of things from a breach of contract. So for example, um, if the breach involved the destruction of a factory, both the cost of rebuilding and the loss of production suffered from rebuilding um, would fall within this first category. And this is what we classically refer to as direct losses. Um, the second type um, in Hadley v Baxendale are, are any damages which may reasonably be supposed to have been in the contemplation of both parties at the time they made the contract. Um, this category depends upon additional facts being known to both parties. Uh, so in the example of the factory just given, it may be that the loss of production during the period of rebuilding caused the loss of a particularly lucrative long-term contract. Um, the loss of such contract would not be recoverable un unless both parties knew that the contract might be lost in the event of such a breach. So these are what we refer to as indirect or consequential losses. You know, in the terms indirect and consequential, they can just be used interchangeably. 
The traditional approach of English law has been that exclusions for consequential or indirect losses will usually exclude only those losses following within the second category. Therefore, in the case of the factory I just mentioned, um, such an exclusion would not affect any claims for ordinary loss of production suffered during the period the factory was unavailable. Um, and such an interpretation has been criticised as one which, which the average businessman would not expect. However, Hadley v Baxendale is, uh, and the rule about the second limb is very well established. And in British Sugar, the Court of Appeal commented that reasonable businessmen using such language must be taken to be aware of the distinction. Um, in more recent years, judicial, judicial criticism of the traditional approach has appeared. Um, in 2002, for example, one member of the House of Lords stated that he wished to reserve the question as to whether the traditional approach was correct. In 2015, a judge of the Commercial Court, who has since been appointed to the, the Supreme Court, um, indicated that the traditional approach was to be deprecated, which in judge speak is definitely not a strong endorsement. In 2016, the Court of Appeal thought it was questionable whether the cases underpinning the traditional approach would be decided in the same way today. So that's very interesting that we have the case that we're going to look at now. Um, so moving on to the case in hand. Um, in this case, 2E um, sued Sony for, among other things, loss of profit arising from a fire at Sony's warehouse in Enfield. 2E was in the business of publishing, marketing and selling various home entertainment media such as Blu-ray discs, DVDs and CDs um, and approximately £40 million worth of stock owned by 2E was being held at Sony's warehouse at the time of the fire and this fire was caused by the civil disorder arising from the shooting of Mark Dugan in 2011. One issue which arose in the proceedings was whether 2E's claim for loss of profit was precluded by an indirect and consequential loss exclusion, which was expressed as follows. Um, neither party shall be liable, unliable under this agreement in connection with the supply of or failure to supply the logistics services for any indirect or consequential loss or damage. The clause goes on, and we'll, we'll talk about the second part, but this is the part of the clause that the judge, Mrs Justice O'Farrell, focused on. The second part read, including to the extent only that such are indirect or consequential loss or damage only, but not limited to loss of profits, loss of sales, loss of revenue, damage to reputation, lost or waste of management or staff time or interruption of business. Um, this is where the clause starts to get slightly convoluted. And actually in the, in the judgment, uh, the judge was slightly disparaging about this part of the exclusion, saying that it was particularly unhelpful. Um, and this definitely was because of the unclear drafting. So after considering the recent judicial criticism of the traditional approach, Mrs Justice O'Farrell accepted the submission that any general understanding of the meaning of indirect or consequential loss must not override the true construction of that clause when read in context against the other provisions in the logistics contract and the factual matrix. However, when she was eva evaluating the natural and ordinary meaning of the clause, she reached the same conclusion as a traditional approach, stating, the exclusion is for any indirect or consequential loss or damage. The direct and natural result of the fire was a destruction of the goods in the warehouse, causing lost profits and business interruption losses, losses to the claimants. 
Therefore, the claims in this case do not appear to fall within the scope of the exclusion. So this case appears to be the first occasion on which a direct attempt to overcome the traditional approach has been made by reference to the recent, the recent judicial criticism of it. It is of note that the, coach, the court applied the traditional approach whilst accepting the need to give the words indirect and consequential their natural and ordinary meaning in the context of the agreement as a whole and the relevant factual matrix. It is unfortunate that the court's reasoning in this regard is not spelled out in more detail. The central thrust of Sonny's argument was that TUI's lost profits were a consequence of the destruction of the media held at the warehouse and were therefore consequential losses. The judge appears to have disagreed with his argument on the basis that the lost profits were nevertheless caused as a direct and natural result of the fire. So back to Hadley v. Baxendale reasoning. The judgment is likely to add to the growing debate over the proper interpretation of indirect and consequential loss exclusions under English law. In the meantime, parties negotiating, contract, negotiating contracts with such exclusions should be aware of the arguments being made for a broadening of the traditional approach. The arguments made by Sony in this case would have dramatically expanded the reach of the clause in comparison to the traditional approach, which is thought not to have resulted in a single reported case where losses have been effectively excluded. Therefore, from a drafting perspective, the important takeaway is to understand what you're trying to achieve in the contract. And if you want to exclude certain types of losses, especially which can be both direct and indirect, clearly state this. This is again another consequential loss case where a judge has criticized poor drafting. So drafters really do need to take note as there may be unintended consequences. Okay, well, thank you for that, Andy. Um, if I'm right in thinking, the way the TCC dealt with this matter was that they they started with the natural and ordinary meaning of the words uh, that were being used in the indirect and consequential loss clause um, before going on to consider um, the authorities um, that had basically decided um, the meaning of indirect and consequential loss um, by reference to Hadley and Baxendale and the traditional approach. So they, they took a two-staged approach. Uh, and having done so, they I think they, they came to the view that the second approach, that's the Hadley and Baxendale traditional approach, uh, supported their initial finding, uh, which had arisen from their consideration of the natural and ordinary meaning of the words. So what I want to just ask you is to what extent you think that two-staged approach will always work and whether that is the right approach to take. Um, and in particular, I just want to consider with you um, the extent to which there is a tension uh, that arises between the traditional approach, or there could be a tension arising between that approach and relying solely on the natural and ordinary meaning of the words. So back to you. Thanks for that, Rob. Um, so I think what we've learned from this case and what we've learned in the whole direction of the way that the courts are going when they interpret um, indirect and consequential loss exclusion clauses is let's not slavishly follow that it's only the second limb of Hadley v. Baxendale. Um, you know, and you and Jeremy are litigators and, and you will look at what drafters <laughs> put on the page in front of you. Um, and obviously, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm a lawyer who drafts contracts um, as part of my job. Um, so I, I, when I am drafting um, consequential and indirect loss exclusion clauses, 
I am now having to consider what is the natural and ordinary meaning of the words and to draft that within the contract, the, the factual contract uh, context of the contract. Um, and I'm also have to consider the second limb of Hadley B. Baxendale. But I think it definitely is that uh, a very clear approach to drafting um, and saying exactly what it is that it is you're tending to exclude. Um, that is the most important thing um, to bring together what you've addressed, you know, what you've identified is the issue, is this this conflict between it not solely being the second limb of Hadley and B. Baxendale, but the, the drafter having to take into account other factors, uh, particularly the natural and ordinary meaning of the words and the factual contract uh, context of the contract. Great. Thanks so much, Andy. Um, good to hear the um, draftsman's um, perspective on, on the situation. Uh, so, Jeremy, uh, speaking as one disputes lawyer to another, as it were, um, the traditional approach, as, as we've heard, has been the subject of judicial uh, scrutiny. Uh, it's been questioned in a number of recent cases, in particular uh, trans transocean uh, drilling against Providence Resources and also the Star Polaris case, both in 2016. Uh, and and in, the, in the present case, the, um, the two entertain video against Sony case that we've just heard Andy uh, speak about, uh, both those cases were distinguished um, by the TCC. Um, so they, they didn't need to feel bound to follow them. They were able to distinguish the situation. But in your opinion, uh, how do you see the courts dealing with indirect and consequential loss clauses in the future? Uh, I know that's a, a fairly big topic, uh, but if you could give me your uh, um, uh, thoughts on that, that'd be helpful. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that the courts generally tend to be evolutionary rather than revolutionary in their approach. So I'm not expecting that we will necessarily see um, the approach the courts have taken in the past thrown out in a whole new approach taken. But as you and Andy have noted, you know, in this particular case, the court took a, a two-step approach or a two-pronged approach and looked at the natural and ordinary meaning of the words as well as the traditional approach. And, and they got to the same place. Um, that's not to say they, they always would get to the same place, I suppose, but here they did. But what we have seen, I suppose, it, it's, it's the courts have not um, demonstrated a desire to move away entirely from, from the established approach. Um, it is something which is um, well well established in English law. And as Andy mentioned, you know, there, there is authority that uh, the reasonable businessmen using such language must be aware of the distinction of how the second one of Hadley and Baxendale is, is used. Um, but the key takeaway, I think, is precisely what, what Andy articulated, which is the need for drafters to really consider precisely what it is they are trying to exclude um, and to be as, as precise as possible in the language that's used to uh, to limit the ambiguity and limit the ambit for the court to perhaps come to a different conclusion when looking at things some years down the track with the benefit of hindsight. Great. Uh, look, Jeremy, Andy, thank you both for sharing those interesting insights uh, on the, these uh, two recent cases. Uh, and thank you to everyone watching us today and for tuning in, as it were. Uh, we look forward to seeing you all again for the next podcast on the CMS Oil & Gas Annual Review on latest developments in English oil and gas law. Thank you and goodbye.